This episode of Annotated is brought to you by the new novel Careers for Women by Joanna Scott. Maggie Gleason is looking toward the future. Part of a mid-century wave of young women seeking new lives in New York City, Maggie works for legendary Port Authority public relations maven Lee K. Jaffe, affectionately known to her loyal staff as Mrs. J. Pauline Moreau is running from the past and a shameful secret. Seeing that Pauline needs a helping hand, Mrs. J tasks Maggie with befriending and looking after Pauline. As Mrs. J's dream of the world's largest skyscraper begins to rise from the streets of Lower Manhattan, Pauline, with the aid of Maggie and Mrs. J, also remakes herself. But when she reignites the scandal that drove her to New York, none of their lives will ever be the same. Careers for Women is a masterful novel about the difficulties of building a career, a dream, or a life, and about the powerful small mercies of friendship and compassion. Our thanks to Careers for Women by Joanna Scott for making Annotated possible. At the corner of 36th Street and Madison Avenue on the east side of Manhattan, you'll find a small campus of buildings that make up one of the most remarkable literary collections in the world. It's not a university or a museum, but the private collection, now open to the public, of James Pierpont Morgan, the titan of -of turn-of-the-century American finance and one of the most influential and well-funded book collectors the world has ever known. Today, the Morgan holds a truly eye-popping trove of literary treasures. We're talking three Gutenberg Bibles, Shakespeare first folios, drawings by Leonardo da Vinci, manuscripts with marginalia by Toni Morrison, and on and on. If Indiana Jones ever had to steal an ancient scroll, this is the kind of place he would steal it from. It began as Morgan's private study, and when that overflowed, a stately new building complete with an ornate reading room designed by the famous architectural firm McKim, Mead, and White. And a hundred years later, a sleek glass pavilion by Rinzo Piano brought the Morgan, as it is now known, into the 20th century. But the most important arrival to the Morgan came the year before the grand new building opened in 1906. A young librarian's assistant from New Jersey who, after a single 45-minute interview with J.P. Morgan himself, became the Morgan's first librarian. She would also become a confidant, perhaps the confidant, of America's most influential banker. And when he died in 1913, he left her $50,000, the largest bequest outside his family, which would be worth more than a million dollars today. Her name was Belle da Costa Green, then a 22-year-old woman of Portuguese descent with a hodgepodge training in librarianship who got the meeting after impressing J.P. Morgan's nephew. Except her name wasn't Belle da Costa Green. She wasn't 22 and she wasn't Portuguese. It would take almost a hundred years after she was hired by the richest man in the world for her true identity to be uncovered. Hello and welcome to Annotated. I'm Jeff O'Neill. And I'm Rebecca Shinsky. In this episode, we explore the life of Belle DaCosta Green and the age of acquisition in which she lived and worked. It's a world of art, literature, high-stakes auctions, and the creation of some of the great cultural collections in the world. And at the center of it all is a flamboyant, secretive, alluring, subversive, glamorous, and influential librarian. Annotated is sponsored by Blame, a new standalone novel of psychological suspense from New York Times bestselling author Jeff Abbott. A seemingly idyllic, close-knit suburban neighborhood hides deeply buried secrets in this emotionally intense new suspense novel from New York Times bestselling author Jeff Abbott, Blame. 
Two years ago, Jane Norton crashed her car on a lonely road, killing her friend David and leaving her with amnesia. At first, everyone was sympathetic. Then they found Jane's note. I wish we were dead together. From that day, the town turned against her. But even now, Jane is filled with questions. Why were they on that road? Why was she with David? Did she really want to die? Most of all, she must find out who has just written her an anonymous message. I know what really happened. I know what you don't remember. Blame by Jeff Abbott is out now and available wherever books are sold. By the time J.P. Morgan hired Belle DeCosta Green as his personal librarian, he had been seriously collecting artistic treasures for years. But his attention had increasingly turned away from his business and more seriously toward his library and collecting. And he was just one of a bunch of newly super wealthy Americans interested in collecting. It's a particular moment in which men made rich by the Industrial Revolution combined their unheard of fortunes with a passion for art and culture. There were always people who, both on the American side and on the British side of the equation, that were fond of antiquities and books in particular. And sort of the perfect storm occurs. This is Andrea Mays, author of The Millionaire and the Bard, a history of Henry Folger's quest to collect every Shakespeare first folio. The thing that enables this all to become extremely important and visible is that we have After the end of the Civil War, the beginning of the Industrial Revolution in the United States, and the creation of tremendous amount of wealth for people who had not inherited it. Unlike European aristocrats, these new American kings of industry did not have castles and palaces full of treasures collected over hundreds of years. They were building giant estates from scratch. And they wanted to fill their world with paintings by the masters and first editions and antique furniture that, by definition, didn't exist in the States. But across the Atlantic, much of the wealth-generating property of landed gentry in England and elsewhere wasn't keeping pace with what trains and cotton gins and factories could do. And there was a lifestyle to maintain. For example, in in England, you might have someone with a, a royal title and a lot of money who had no interest really in acquisition. There, there were exceptions, but you know, some of them would rather go hunting or buy horses and so on. We often use the word priceless to describe treasures like these, but at the time, these items were truly priceless, as in they did not have a price. Until the Morgans and Folgers of the world caught the acquisition bug, these family antiquities mostly just weren't for sale. But remember, these American men weren't just rich, they were rich. The kind of rich that could get reluctant aristocrats to part with heirlooms as was the case when Henry Folger coveted a book in the collection of one Coningsby Sibthorpe. He has a very fine copy, and the dealer who does conservation on his copy essentially reveals the existence of the copy, and essentially that turns into a multi-year auction, Uh, I'll give you this, I'll give you that, and that the price keeps going higher, and at some point he says, well, if you would offer me this outrageous amount, then I would, you know, consider selling it. And the outrageous amount which Folger ended up paying was about $50,000 in 1903. And it was at that time the most anyone had ever paid for a book, by a lot. So there's certainly that part to it, that people who had perhaps not really thought about selling one of their antiquities, a book or a piece of art, would have become more aware that the prices that were being offered for those works were so high that it became very appealing to them. It is a classic case of demand creating supply. And as the demand in the form of robber baron fortunes was vast, the price started going up and everybody knew it, from the owners to the dealers to the brokers to the buyers. 
the competition for literary masterworks was blistering, and it would take not just money but serious skill to assemble a world-class collection. It's at this point that the nature of Morgan's interest in collecting springs a leak. He has the motivation and resources to buy, but the kind of collecting he wants to do requires an expertise he just doesn't possess. So he's now the biggest whale in the history of antiquities, a guy with unlimited funds who doesn't know what he's doing. He's in danger of being the mark in one of the most lucrative European industries, price gouging keen but uninformed Americans. Someone like Henry Folger, who made collecting Shakespeare his life's work, could do it because he dedicated almost his entire attention to collecting, and to one particular area at that. Morgan didn't have that kind of dedication, both in terms of time and focus. He wanted the best of everything. Morgan tended to collect high spots, so he would go out and he would get a really fantastic copy, a big one, uncut, you know, with the original binding on it or something extremely elaborate if it wasn't the original binding, and just a fantastic copy, and then he was done. So with the competition increasing and sellers getting more sophisticated, Morgan needed help. He needed someone to appraise and negotiate and locate these treasures spread over multiple continents, created over millennia, and written in dozens of languages. And that person turned out to be Belle de Costa Green. We don't know exactly why Morgan chose Green, but we do know the sequence of events that brought her to his study for an interview. By 1905, Green was working at Princeton's library after having gone to Teachers College in New York, then taking a short series of courses at Amherst in librarianship. But nothing on her resume suggested she was qualified for this job. She had some experience with illuminated manuscripts at Princeton, but what she had more than anything else was an in. J.P. Morgan's nephew Junius had met her and was enthralled by her. So when his uncle is asking around about bright, capable, educated people to help him with his library, Junius suggests Bell. She comes into Manhattan for a sit-down and walks away with what would become one of the most fascinating literary jobs that has ever existed, scouring the world for marvelous books to buy. So while we may not know why Morgan hired her, we have a pretty good guess. She was simply one of the most charming women of her time. I had a list of adjectives that I had found in a thesaurus that would replace the adjectives that I kept, (laughs) you know, sort of falling back on. This is Professor Heidi Artizone, who wrote a biography of Green called An Illuminated Life. They were things like brilliant, flamboyant, animated, um, beautiful, uh, exotic. You know, these were the kinds of words that were used to describe her over and over again by people both in her personal and her professional life. That her personality was actually something that drove her profession and, and her career. Remember that Morgan is a collector of interesting things. And even at his advanced age, when he met Belle, he was, let's just say, a great admirer of women. He was entranced by her in much the same way that the rest of society would eventually be. People responded to it. They remarked on it. She didn't fit their expectation of what a librarian or a secretary or a cataloger should be, both in her appearance and then also in her demeanor and how she interacted with people and the kind of flair that she had really up until the final decade of her life. Morgan knew that to do the job well, you needed to be able to wear many different hats. You had to advise Morgan, basically tell him what to do with his money, but you also needed to be judicious about approaching European noblemen and the like. It was a job that once she entered the world of buying and selling and acting as his representative to dealers and other collectors, it was crucial that she be comfortable and able to interact with people of all ranks and backgrounds and hold her ground against people who were her supposed social superiors, which she had to do often. If Morgan was impressed that Bell was able to get an interview with him and nail it without much in the way of pedigree or social standing, 
he didn't know the half of it. Green's whole life to that point was about negotiating her place in the world. As we mentioned earlier, Morgan's new Portuguese librarian wasn't exactly Portuguese. Her father had a very public and prominent career as the first Black graduate of Harvard College, the first, um, the first Black professor of University of South Carolina after the Civil War ended, and was a dean at Howard University, which is a historically Black, at the time, all-Black college in, in D.C., so very openly Black. Belle Marion Greener, who would later be known as Belle DaCosta Green, was born on November 26, 1879, to Richard and Genevieve Greener, members of Washington, D.C.'s emerging Black middle class. When Belle was six, the Greeners moved to New York City, where Richard Greener had taken a job as treasurer for the Grant National Monument Foundation, which at the time was beginning to raise money to build Grant's tomb. It was during this move that the Greeners' racial identity began to shift. While Richard Greener was known to be Black, in fact, he was hired in part because the Grant Foundation wanted at least one Black representative, his light-skinned wife and daughters could live as white relatively easily in New York. They moved into a largely white neighborhood on the west side of Manhattan where it was possible to take on a new identity. It was a precarious existence, with Richard, a high-profile figure whose work was written about in local Black newspapers, and with Genevieve and their children living their day-to-day lives for all intents and purposes as white. It was the opposite, really, of how most stories of passing worked. We have a lot of evidence that most African-Americans who passed did so temporarily, primarily for work, to get, a, to get a better job or just to get a job. And some would do it and come back to a Black family in a Black neighborhood so that they weren't fully passing. It was just at work. Eventually, the strain was too much for the Greener marriage. In 1888, Richard took a foreign posting in Russia, and he would never again live with the rest of the family. With him out of the country and out of the spotlight, the Greens, as they would be known, entered the 20th century as white. I certainly think that the debate about how to live and present themselves was one of the points of contention between Richard Greener and his wife that ultimately led to their separation. But the extent to which the children were aware of this as an issue or an option, I just don't know. Belle was one of the older ones, so if any of them were part of the conversation and part of the decision, she would have been one of them. Little did Morgan know that the stunning self-assurance and charisma that his new librarian displayed came from long experience in observing and adjusting to unfamiliar circles. Her ability to consort with billionaires and barons with ease and flair was just another example of her fitting into whatever room she was in. There's certainly the self-creation or the self-recreation that comes with denying or living without explicit reference to having Black ancestry. Right, so part of passing requires an individual to be able to navigate a world that they did not grow up in. The name she took and the personal history she told people were carefully crafted. A Portuguese background could explain her slightly darker complexion, and her middle name seemed to affirm a vaguely Mediterranean lineage. When pressed for details, she would admit to being from down south, but would never mention Washington, D.C. And people did wonder about who she was. Her race... Her racial background, at least the fact that she's not just white, people aren't quite sure what else she might be, although she doesn't overtly talk about it. She does covertly talk about it or talk about it in coded ways. She would make these joking references to looking black, to having a black appearance, to being, you know, the darkest person in the room. Her strategy seemed to be to diffuse interest by tacitly acknowledging that she did not look like everybody else and wasn't that funny. But the stakes were enormously high. If it was known who her father was, everything she had worked for would go away, especially when she was just making a name for herself and proving her abilities. 
And if it happened in the early years, I think it would have been over. Morgan was willing to challenge some aspects of racism and defend some people of color. But his son was less less interested in going against the grain, shall we say. It's doubtful that Green could have known the attention that would come to her within just a few years of joining the Morgan. For obvious reasons, she avoided the limelight as long as she could, but the booming world of high-stakes book collecting wouldn't let her duck publicity for long. Eventually, she had a virtual blank check from Morgan to hunt the big game, and she found herself center stage at the most widely covered auction of the age. The Ho auction takes place in 1911. It's actually not a really big deal in terms of the works that are available or even what Green eventually gets for the library, which is a copy, an early English language printer named Caxton, a copy of the, the Death of Arthur, which is a version of the King Arthur myth. What makes it a turning point is the publicity that's given to it and the prices that in part drive that publicity. And these days, major literary auctions made front page news in large part because of the stature of the players involved. The Ho auction pitted two of the mightiest against each other, J.P. Morgan and Henry Huntington, the railroad magnate who owned the Pacific Electric Railway. Both of them wanted the Caxton edition of The Death of Arthur, empowering their agents with unprecedented sums to acquire it. Morgan had authorized Green to spend $100,000 to secure it. Green herself didn't think the copy was worth anywhere near $100,000, and her goal was to not only acquire it, but to do it at a price she could live with. And so she carefully and methodically bid up the prices on other pieces that Huntington wanted, but that she herself didn't find that interesting. So when it came time to bid on the manuscript, she had more money on the sidelines than Huntington, who had already spent $150,000 in total. In the end, she won the auction for just over $42,000. That was really just shocking and dramatically high from a public perspective. Then she got another round of publicity for being this young, beautiful woman who's in the middle of all of these bookmen. The New York papers ran headlines about the price of the book and the woman who bought it. And the accompanying stories had sketches of them both. After this, Bell was a leading light of New York's literary and cultural circles. Morgan's money and her new fame gave her access to the high life. And the list of her friends and acquaintances was a who's who of -of turn-of-the-century American society. John D. Rockefeller taught her how to drive. She would go on drinking excursions with Sarah Bernhardt. She was painted nude by Matisse. And she was even name-checked by Gertrude Stein in the autobiography of Alice B. Toklas. She clearly enjoyed herself and drank life to the lees, but her work always came first, even if it meant giving up drinking from time to time to climb aboard the water wagon, as she called it. But her profile also gave her an advantage in her collecting work, one that no one else enjoyed. She was very overtly, and she would talk about this, very overtly finding scholars, charming them to death and making them give up their secrets to her. What she had to do then was grab onto visiting scholars who would come in to look at individual works that Morgan owned and try to glean as much information as she could from them about what they were doing and what books she should be reading to understand what they were doing. Bell was constantly expanding her knowledge base so she could make better decisions about what to buy and how much to pay. Just think of the scope of her task. She had to be able to make informed choices about whether to buy this Renaissance painting or that early Christian manuscript. Anything related to European culture going back to antiquity, she needed a working knowledge of it. It's sort of difficult now to express how unusual a position she was in. This was a world of men, of rich and highly educated men. So initially her tasks were limited, and even then she wasn't really what Morgan had in mind. 
she wasn't the kind of person that Morgan was looking for, even for the first version of her job there, which was simply just to catalog his possessions at the library. Fairly low level compared to what she ended up doing. But he was looking for a man with a degree. He wasn't looking for an undegreed young woman who had only been a librarian's assistant for a couple of years. But Green's ambition and competence quickly became apparent, and she ended up doing much more for Morgan than shelving books. She really was organizing his private life as much as his book-related life. She talks about reading Bible passages to him at night when he was worried about the financial situation of the nation and just needed some soothing She also talks about trying to manage his actual mistresses and trying to make sure that they didn't accidentally meet each other as they were coming to to meet him. When Morgan died in 1913, his son Jack took over the empire. And though he was initially wary about the Morgan collection and Belle herself, she persuaded him to not only continue the process of refining and expanding the collection, but to start the process of turning it into a public institution. This was something on her mind from early on, and shortly after she bought the Ho manuscript, she wrote a rare article in which she warned about private collections taking too many books and manuscripts from one sequestered collection to another. She wanted to make sure these treasures would be accessible to the world. Feldkosta Green believed, take these volumes off the dusty shelves of the aristocrats in England and put them into the hands of scholars and democratize, essentially make available to everybody what these works are that had formerly been locked up in these in these uh, libraries. It took more than a decade, but eventually Bell convinced Jack to turn the library over to a trust in 1924. For the next 25 years, she continued to expand both the library's collection and the public's access to it. She put on dozens of exhibitions, loaned out works to other institutions, organized public lectures, and hosted graduate courses, all to ensure that the world could benefit from the collection. She lived and worked through the Great Depression, two world wars, and two J.P. Morgans, all while knowing that at any moment society might outcast her because of her ancestry. She kept her secret from the public until her death, and several decades beyond it. It was only when Jean Strauss was pulling newly available records for a massive biography of J.P. Morgan that Belle da Costa Green was also recognized as Belle Marion Greener. We don't know if Belle would be glad that her story is more fully known today, but she surely would be glad that if you go to the Morgan right now, you can see Jane Austen's unfinished manuscript of a novel called The Watsons and the journals of Henry David Thoreau, and not for nothing, the book of Hunting, Hawking, and Heraldry by Juliana Berners, which was published in 1486 and is generally thought to be the first printed book written by a woman. This episode was written and produced by me, Jeff O'Neill, and directed by Jeremy Desmond. Sound design and editing by Kyle O'Neill. Special production assistance by Rita Mead. Enormous thanks to Andrea Mays and Heidi Artizone. If you have a moment to rate and review Annotated on Apple Podcasts, that's the best way to help new people find the show. You can drop us an email and let us know what you thought about this episode at annotated at bookriot.com. Be sure to check out the show notes for this episode or go to bookriot.com slash annotated for how to enter Hachette's giveaway of all 12 books sponsoring this season. We'll be back with another new episode in two weeks.